Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how are you doing there it is the first day we've been let out in the last six weeks it's actually I don't know about you but as I was saying last week I cut it up to here with the bloody lockdown. So it is fantastic. John is now going to hit the gym. He is going the gin. to... The gym. <laughs> He's going to get rid of the lockdown bag. I'm going to go out and play football this afternoon, which will be a pathetic sight. But away we go. How are you, Head? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be out. It's fantastic. And how was your week? All good? Another tough week, but it was all good. But you know, all the talk was about Maradona. And you know I'm not a big football fan. But Maradona is a big deal. So I started reading up about Maradona and watching some of the docos on him and, and all the rest. And I came across some brilliant facts about him. Let Go me give on, you, give us, let, give let us me a give few. Give us a few. Okay. Well, first of all, he died on November 25th, 2020. He was 60. But that is the anniversary of both George Best. I heard the George Best one, yeah. yeah. Go on. And Fidel Castro. You know, and the interesting thing of Fidel Castro... He's a huge fan. Was, well, Maradona spent about two or three years in Cuba getting medical treatment in Cuba because okay. Cuban medical treatment is fantastic if you're rich. As Cal says, you know, look, our Cal, yeah. by the way, my son spent his transition year in Cuba, or most of it, and he came back. Of course, the parents sent him there to be imbibed with great socialist ideas, and he came back saying, <laughs> that communist shit, man, doesn't work. <laughs> but, but, and you know the thing about what he did as well was he wrote a book called I Am Diego, and he donated all the Cuban royalties back to Cuba. Well, that's brilliant. And of yeah. course, you know, the other great Irish connection with Cuba is Che Guevara. Indeed. Che Guevara was a Guevara Lynch. And the Lynches were originally Irish. Do you have any more Maradona things before we go? I do. Yeah. I lo- go on, go, go well, on. I just love the, the one where Carlos Bellardo, who is the Argentinian manager in the 1990 World Cup, 
when he was asked about the team. So, you know, what's what's going to be the makeup of the team? You know, all that kind of stuff. And he said, well, it'll be Maradona and 10 others. <laughs> brilliant. That was brilliant. And in actual fact, because we're going to go to Argentina. Many years ago, I wrote a book. Hold on a sec, John. I'll just... You've got to remember the name of it, is it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> name the bleeding book. So let's talk about Argentina, because I want to go down to Argentina to talk to Martin Lusto in a sec about Maradona. Oh, yeah. But did you know that the single biggest landing of immigrants ever in one ship in Argentina came from Ireland? Oh. Yes. A really? ship called the City of Dresden landed in Argentina on the 15th of February, 1889 at Porto Madero, which I've been to. It's right. a big port. It's now trendy. There's like bars and cafes and whatever. But it used to be the big port. And in actual fact, they used to, there was an Irish paper called the Southern Cross mm-hmm. in Argentina, which I think is still going. And this is how the Irish were treated when they arrived in Argentina. This is a quote from Father Matthew Gochran, who was <laughs> a priest in Argentina on a fundraising mission for Irish immigrants there. And this is a quote from the Southern Star, 1889. Anything more scandalous could not be imagined. Men, women and children, those blanched faces told of sickness, hunger and exhaustion. After the fatigues of a journey, they had to sleep as best they might in the flags of a courtyard. This is in Argentina when they arrived. The children ran around naked. To say they were treated like cattle would not be true, for the owner of cattle would at least provide them with food and drink. But these poor people were left to live and die unaided by the officials who were paid to look after them. Another article from the Southern Cross says, Young girls of prepossessing appearance are inveigled into disreputable houses. A swell carriage, as swell occupants drives up, promises of splendid situations are made and accepted, and away go the unsuspecting girls. And this was because all those poor girls went into prostitution when they arrived in Argentina. Jesus. And this is, so the Irish connection with Argentina is very strong. Mm. Very, very strong. Not like the Italians or the Spaniards, but it's there. Now, what intrigues me about Maradona and Argentina and all this stuff, John, is what happened to that country. Because it was, any country that's accepting in loads of immigrants is really rich. Mm. So I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's go down. You know my mate, Martin Lusto. I do. Sure, he, he turned up at our house one time with you and I had to get you to do a VO for something or other, a voiceover for something or other. And he sat quietly in the corner and we did our normal thing as we normally do. And I think you were going down to kill economics. Yeah, I think and so. And apparently he got into the car and turned around to you and said, why you let them speak to you like that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I know, yeah, because he didn't know I knew you, yeah. and you were saying, "Do it again, yeah. you gobshite! Do it again!" Exactly. Anyway, yeah. you know, he's an old mate of mine. He was the youngest ever economics minister in Argentina. He was the youngest ever ambassador of Argentina to the United States. Wow. He then set up his own political party, and he's now the head of the Senate. How did you meet him? <laughs> it's a funny one. Years ago, I got an award by the, uh, the World Economic Forum. You know, the people at Davos. Yeah. You might say, of course, you don't get any, don't get any awards in Ireland. You only get awards <laughs> by foreigners in Ireland. They just think you're, oh, I wouldn't give your man an award. So you've got to go away to get awards in this bloody country, you know? <laughs> anyway, I got an award called the Young Global Leader from the people at Davos. 
and for sort of contribution to economics and whatever. And he got the same one from oh, Argentina. Okay, right. So we actually turned up the two of us and we were and it was in a place called Tianyin. It was in China, right? I had never been internally, I'd been to China once, but never internally in China. Yeah. And it was in this city called Tianyin. Tianyin. It's got 11 million people in it. I'd never heard of it. I've oh, never yeah. heard of it. It's 11 million people. China's full it's of those mad, cities. Right? So I arrive up and get my little piece of thing and this Argentinian geezer beside me. And then we're sitting and he says to me, he says, let's go out for a drink. Let's go and have a look at the, at the city because we were like both there. And yeah. then we went to Beijing. We just hit it off really like yeah, good yeah. nights. And we went to a market called the Pearl Market, which is where knockoff goods are all sold in China, which are like, Tenth of the price you get here. Yeah, yeah. And we went yeah. into one place, and Martin was trying to explain to the Chinese people. Yeah. He said, "Look, I might look European, but I'm much poorer than you. <laughs> I have no money." <laughs> and we bought. We both. This is difficult. We bought two pairs of jeans or whatever, and I bought the jeans. I think for twenty dollars. Right? right. They started at a hundred. Yeah. And I bought them for twenty. And you got it for a bargain. I thought I got it for a bargain. Martin got them for two. <laughs> So that shows you the art. So anyway, let's go down to uh, Argentina and talk to Martin Lusto. Martin, listen, it's it's great to talk to you. I remember I'm going to talk straight away. I'm going to get into Maradona. You said to me maybe 10 years ago in the back of some bar somewhere, we were discussing football rather than economics, which is always much more interesting to discuss, how the world loved Maradona in a way they never loved Pelé even though Pele and Maradona were always vying for who was the best player. But there was something about Maradona that Pele didn't have. Let's explore that a wee bit. Before I asked you about Buenos Aires this weekend and the death of Maradona, etc. What was that thing that he had, do you think, that made him so popular with everyone? Okay. First, I think there are two things going on at the same time. First, football is the most egalitarian uh, sport. Why? Because... It's got so so very few points. You play basket or tennis, there are very lots of points. So there's statistics rules. So the better team always, always wins and kills the, the worst team. In football, it's maybe you win one nil. So if you're lucky, a bad team in a bad day can beat a good team in a good day. Yes. That's something that doesn't happen in any other sport. So football is loved so much, it's so popular because everybody has a chance. And you have a, the probability of beating the powerful. And Maradona always played for that side, for, for the, the weak. For the weak. For the weak. And he always faced and clashed with the powerful. In football, in Argentino, Argentino Juniors, or in Napoli, or with the Argentine squad, or in life. And he was a symbol of everyone that is rebellious against power, everywhere. That's why he was so much loved. Tell me about Maradona in Argentina. What was he, like, Just not just the symbol of the downtrodden, but how did people react to his death? What I mean, we're seeing it on TV, but we don't have no sense of what it's like on the street. Let me first go on another place, which a friend of mine told me one day, and this is related to your first question, that Pelé was a black footballer that played for the white, and Maradona was a white footballer that played for the black. Ooh, I like that. I know what you mean. In, in that he never ceded to power. He was never close to power. He was all the time clashing with power. So everywhere in the world, whether it's in Syria, where there is a poster of Maradona in some ruins, or when I was in Afghanistan as a war correspondent, I remember the day that the war started, 
we took a, a car with two other journalists and uh, we went to an Afghan camp and nobody wanted to get out of the car. So I got out of the car and the only thing I did was to start saying Maradona, 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 Maradona. <laughs> so they knew that they knew we were not with the U.S. Well, that's a very um, good point. And, and then someone said Maradona, Argentina, and we ended up interviewing Mujahideen or Mujahideen. Yeah. So this is a, a friend of mine you knew, David, my friend David. Yeah, yeah, I remember David. Yeah, yeah. used yeah. to say that when, when we met there in Afghanistan, he said that he made a joke, he told the joke that Argentinians, we carried instead of a saint or a virgin or something in our wallets, we carried a photo of Maradona, which is what I did because my view was that in case I encounter Afghans or troops, I could show my identity and which side I was playing for wow. just by showing Maradona. But the idea of right now, what was the feeling when Maradona, when the news came out? We all thought, because of how many um, health issues Maradona had in the past, we all thought, unconsciously thought that he was immortal. So mm -hmm. first was a terrible shock. We all started getting messages. Maradona is dead, Maradona is dead, Maradona is dead. And then we all started to mourn immediately. And there was a, a feeling, particularly in my generation, my generation in Argentina suffered in terms of economic failures, lots of issues. Just think that the per capita level of Argentina right now is the same as in 1973. Wow. Jesus. And the... And of course, the income distribution is much worse. We have 10 times more poverty than by those times. So if we think of how many national happiness, moments of happiness we had in the last 50 years, the, the only moments of national total happiness that we had, they were given by Maradona. They were given to us by Maradona, be it 1979 when we won the Junior World Cup or 86 or the goals against England. So your generation feels that this, this proximity to him. Yes, and we feel that we owe him a lot. We have plenty to be thankful to Maradona. The good things that Maradona did, they did for all of us Argentinians. The bad things were, if you want, against himself or maybe some close family or friends. So in the balance for the society, there's no doubt that we owe Maradona a lot, a lot. And I think that's coupled, particularly at this moment, with the feeling that the pandemic and the, the quarantine gives us. It's that, you know, I'm about to turn 50. So you're, you're finite. Yep. And, and everything is more fragile than you think. And suddenly, among that fragility, then someone who's supposed to be immortal dies. And it also shows that there is an era that has just ended at least for many of us in Argentina. And that's how we feel. That's why his funeral and the moment was so filled with emotions and was so popular because we, we really feel that we owe Maradona a lot. We're so grateful. I think that we don't need to forgive Maradona for his fragility, for his sins. For his... It's part of what makes us human. And he is a, a human that uh, rose to levels that are unthinkable in what he did in sports, in what he did in, uh, in football, and in what he did. He's a symbol to many uh, sports starts in different sports. And, and then what he represented, as we were talking at the very beginning, 
for people, for humble people, for people that have almost nothing and the only thing that they have is to dream about beating the one that it's uh, putting a foot on their heads. But I, I, let's let's leave the football because we could talk for hours and hours and hours about the football. Let me talk to you, Martin, about this idea that Maradona's 60 years on this earth, right? And this idea of the Maradona generation in Argentina and what has happened to Argentina in those 60 years. You know, I don't know where to start, but I remember the first time you were at Kilconomics, you stood up. By the way, Martin is a serial recidivist. Uh, coming to Kilkenomics for some reason, he turns up from yeah. from summer in Buenos Aires, the pissing down rain in Kilkenny, <laughs> from the glamour of Buenos Aires, from the sophistication, from the beauty, and he arrives in Kilkenny. And sometimes he looks at me and says, "What am I doing here, man?" <laughs> and I love it. I love it. You do love it. I think. Yes, but because you know we've been to many events, yeah, where we are supposed to speak. But there's something about Kilkenomics that makes it really special. Not only that, it's very close to people, the kind of speakers that it attracts, but usually when you talk in an event, you deliver your speech and then you, you go. Yeah, That's it. So the only thing you do is just you throw at people the thoughts that you already have. In Kilkenomics, you stay there for four days, drinking beer with people that are more clever than you. <laughs> So you you get new ideas. It's not only that you deliver, you get new ideas. There's something about the ecosystem that is very enriching. I hope that for the audience it's, it's too. <laughs> yeah, for us it's, it's great. For the speakers. And by the way, you're first in the list for, uh, for 2021, because we're definitely back okay. in 2021. I, I, told you, I told you that one day, I walk a lot when uh, we, we are in Kilkenny. And one day I was walking and I realized that the city I know the most in percentage terms it's Kilkenny. I know Kilkenny <laughs> more than I know BA. <laughs> <laughs> okay, listen, Martin, let's just talk about Argentina. Because the idea we want I wanted to explain to people is how good countries go bad. And Argentina is the test case of how a country that was going in the right direction for so long just started, just derailed itself. How did Argentina go from being so rich to so poor so quickly? It's something that we are all the time asking ourselves, so there are many views to this. I'll tell you what I believe. Uh, first, there is something that is overrated, or I don't think it's, it's kind of a myth of how Argentina was born and was rich. Argentina was rich at the end of the 19th century. Argentina was the first country in the world in per capita terms. But the reason for that is that we were very few. We were 4 million and uh, it was very easy to increase productivity just by seizing more land, by using more land that was plentiful, that was really available. So we were very few with a lot of land, and the world was buying food. So it's kind of a, we're kidding ourselves. We were rich, but we were rich in a Qatar way. Yeah, you, yeah, you, had yeah, you were like an, an oil producer, a small oil producer yes. at that particular yes. moment. Yes. So the thing that happened since then, first, is that with that, Argentina gained momentum because we had a generation of real statesmen that invented from nothing a very good state. So Argentina's state was the best in Latin America by far in terms of education, health, security, infrastructure. So that, that is something that carried on and gave an impulse to Argentina towards the 60s. In the 60s, Argentina really grew in per capita terms more than the rest of the world and 
kind of found a model from which to keep on growing productivity, which was at the beginning was very easy. Then after the war, the First World War and the Second World War, all the world, all the economic system changed for Argentina because we were relying on complementarity with the UK and suddenly we were competing with the US. So we kind of struggled to find how to rebuild momentum. And then in the 60s, it was okay. What happened since then? It's a mixture, in my view, of two things. The first is that Argentina, given how rich we, feel, we felt at the beginning, and then the influx of immigration, and the immigration were people that had, many of them, they had a, a strong political views. They were anarchists or socialists that they came from Europe. So they were, because you were rich, because of the immigration melting pot, and because of the two biggest parties in Argentina, first the radicals and then the Peronists, the society became very demanding on expanding social rights. And that collided, clashed with the capacity of the, com- of the country to deliver. No, I get you. So you're saying that basically the, the root of Argentina's problem is that over the last 30 or 40 years, the state apparatus has become more and more and more inefficient with the expectation of the population is not only just the same, but is rising and... In the middle of this, you can't produce enough to pay what you need. Tell me, exactly. tell me, what is the rate of exchange, the peso dollar now? So the exchange rate, the official exchange rate is 80 pesos per dollar. Do you remember what was the exchange rate when you came here? About 40. Okay, 40. Now it's 80. So that's, it's halved in a year. Yes. Wow. That's extraordinary. But, but, but had, we had inflation. Remember that we had yeah, inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... It's more or less the same, if you want, because of inflation. But the unofficial exchange rate, because you cannot buy a dollar because of capital controls, the unofficial exchange rate is 150. Wow. So it was 40 last year when I was there. It's officially 80, but it's actually 150. So So the currency has collapsed completely. Yes. You go to uh, a bank, or not not to an official bank, you go to the black market and you exchange your euros for pesos, everything is twice as cheap. Okay, it's John, that's price. where we're going. We're going to Argentina yes. next year to do, the, to do the podcast. We were going to go to Barbados I, last week, but no, I think Argentina's where we're I going. I think we should do a full well, tour. <laughs> if, you want to know, if you want to understand how cheap it is for certain items, remember that when you were here, I, I had my birthday. Yeah. Yes, and we drank a bottle of wine that you like a lot. Yes, yes, and a, yes. A, and a friend of yours liked a lot. Yes. So the other day I went to a restaurant, to El Preferido, your favorite yes. restaurant in Argentina. Yes, exactly. I took a look at the menu, the wine list, and I just tracked the most expensive wine to see how much it was. And the most expensive wine, which was a Nicolás Catena, was 9,000 pesos. So I thought, wow, this is really expensive. And then I realized that it was $60. And it's... So the most expensive wine in a very good restaurant is $60. What is the problem is that Argentina is not using these pandemics and the effect of the pandemics to rethink why we have been failing for six decades. Yeah, yeah, since Maradona. Since Maradona was born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happened to Argentina? Instead of saying, okay, we were not, we were not growing. We're, even if I don't count 2020, in 2019, the, per, the GDP per capita was the same as in 2006. So we've been 13 years without growing the per capita GDP. Wow. And if we go to 74, from 74 until 90, per capita GDP dropped. 
So you have there 16 years and 13 now, 29 years out of 45, 46, with your GDP per capita not growing. So that's why Argentina is a country that's it's stuck. It's not moving yeah, it's anywhere. Yeah, com- and it's completely trapped. It's trapped. So that was, was, that was happening before. The pandemics show that at least some part of that, which is what is the quality of your state to deal with the pandemics in terms of education, in terms of, in terms of health, in terms of providing for the poor, it's very little. And instead of that, creating an awareness now on where to move, it's again creating a tension between the macro equilibrium and the social equilibrium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're and that is that that's been embedding itself stronger and stronger stronger within the political system. So it's kind of the political system should move you out of where you're trapped, but actually it's reinforcing the dynamics of wh- why, to what extent, how deep, and for how long you're trapped. And tell me just before we go, Martin, your generation of Argentinians, are you largely mean to have people emigrated in huge numbers? Have people left in huge numbers? Have people said, you know what, I'm giving up on this place? Like if in 1973 we're at the same GDP per capita as we were then, I mean, are you seeing Argentinians just leaving the country in huge numbers? Or have you seen? Talented people and, and people that are good at creating value are moving away. But the most distressing part for me is that while I was writing my last book, I tour around Argentina, almost all the provinces. And when I issued the book, when we published the book, I did the same. And I, I started every lecture, every, every conference with the same questions. And most of them were in universities, schools, different kinds of social gatherings by unions or businessmen. And I started every lecture with this question. Raise the hands, all of you that think that Argentina is fucked. All of them raise their hands. Okay, now raise your hands, those of you that think that it's Macri's fault, 5%. The president. Cristina's fault, 5%. All of us fault. Everyone, everybody raise their hands. But then I ask, raise their hands, those who are, have plans or are thinking seriously of moving abroad, of going abroad. Mm-hmm. And among the, the young university students, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. De- depending on the place of the country and whether the university was public, state, or private, between 40% and 90% are thinking about moving away, moving out of the country. Why? Youngs have their own way of saying it, but basically two reasons. This country is not going to change. Yeah. And the second one was, I know that it's going to be harder for me at the beginning, but what I build with my life will depend on me. There is nothing external that will derail me from what I aim to do. Yeah, so like if you go, if you end up in a country like Ireland and you're Argentinian, or the States, or Canada, or or Spain, you have a chance that you can actually, in some way, determine your own future. You're you're not going to be pushed away from your course because of something that is systemic and it's not uh, controlled by you. I had a friend that produces coffee and chocolates, and she has two uh, shops here and one in, in Miami. And she told me, you know what the difference is? In Miami, if I fail, it's my fault. I choose the wrong corner, I underestimated the competition, or my product, it's not good enough. In Argentina, I can fail for whatever reason I don't know that is going to strike me. I understand. So basically, 
in Argentina, it's almost impossible to sustain a business and feel that you're in control. Yes, because you are all the time living with urgencies. It's like she told me, I produce things, I create things. So I want to meet my product development guy every day of the week. And instead of that, I'm meeting my financial guy every yeah, day just of the to week keep, just in order to, stay to survive. Afloat. Wow. Yes, I have a friend, you know, Guillermo. Guillermo says that yeah. small and medium companies in Argentina can afford same uh, long-term view that a gazelle in the African savannah. <laughs> Let's try not to get eaten by a lion the next 30 minutes. Jesus, that's horrendous. And just finally, before you go, years ago, you, you described Argentina one day to me. We were talking about soccer. Again, let's conclude with Maradona football. But you said, sometimes you feel that Argentinians and the Argentinian society make great patriots, but shit citizens. Yes. When, when, the play, when the football team is there, we put on the flag, we're this, that, and we're bragging, we're fantastic patriots. Would you ask us to be responsible citizens? And we walk away. So this this disparity between great patriots and terrible citizens, just give me the final word on that. I think it's related to most of what we've been talking about. First, whenever things come very uncertain and you're moving from crisis to crisis to crisis, your uh, long-term view diminishes. Yes. In order to build something with, with the rest of the people, be it a marriage, a family, a club, group of friends, you have to be willing to give something away, to seed on something. Because otherwise, you yeah. cannot. Then you compromise, uh, and then you get back you in this, you compromise this reciprocity, and you get something back, you know. Fox theorem. Mm-hmm. So if something can happen that can destroy everything and doesn't depend on you, then you become a lot more short-sighted. And when you become more short-sighted, you're more selfish. Yeah. You're trying to survive. So... We avoid rules because survival is all the time at stake. And that reinforces itself because if you cannot do that, then you cannot create a better long term. Absolutely. So we are, the, the, if you want, the survival mode in Argentina is when I have the opportunity, be it in business or in whatever, is that I try to seize it. Whether that is good or bad for the whole, I just don't know. Or maybe I know, but I don't care because I need to survive. But we we don't treat Argentina as our home. Someone once told me that it's it's not that you're the homeowner. You're in a hotel or you're (laughs) a tenant. So it's not the same. (laughs) It's an an extraordinary conclusion because, you know, the country that I've visited with you loads of times, really a good few times now, is vibrant and dynamic and the conversations are amazing and... The scenery is amazing and it feels like it feels like you're in Madrid. It feels like you're in Milan. It smells like Italy or Spain. It smells like the Mediterranean. And yet you're not. But it's as if there's a facade up and the facade is so convincing. And yet when you go a little bit deeper, it all turns really nasty. Well, because the facade was real. Uh, Remember that until the 60s, Argentina had a better per capita GDP than Belgium or Japan or Korea or Portugal or Ireland, of course. It was equal to Spain and Italy. So this is, this is a nice metaphor of what I meant by the state we had and the state we have. When you take a look at the old buildings, being town councils or the municipal halls or the schools that were created with a 
the blessing of the fields of Argentina and the agricultural richness, they created institutions and buildings that actually were telling you in their splendor, yep. they, were telling, they were telling the state is here and will be here and it's solid and it's good. We had 40,000 kilometers of railways. Buenos Aires had the second metro, the second subway in the whole Americas after New York and the 11th in the world. So the facade that you see, it's not a facade, it's the ruins of what we had. Yeah, it's the legacy of something else. Yes. No, it's an extraordinary story. The, the Argentinian story is fascinating and kind of depressing. And I actually think the Brits are going to go the same way. I actually do. Anyway, we're going to leave it at that. Okay. Martin, listen, thanks so much. Hey, thank you, and you're all welcome here. We'll wait for you. Okay, cheers, Martin. Thanks, Martin. See ya. Cheers. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There was a really interesting point that he made was about to bring it back to Maradona. The reason why Maradona was such a god in Argentina was because Argentina went through a really crap time. But it was Maradona who gave them, as a nation, moments of joy, real joy. Yeah. Actually, I have one other fact for you in my fact-finding mission, which was recently there was a church of Maradona set up where the year 2020 is now the year 60 DD, which is... Uh, after, after Diego. After Diego. Yeah, no, well, it's the real thing. I mean, what Martin was talking about there, John, is a country that, as he was saying, in the 1960s and 1970s, 1960s, Argentina had the same GDP as Belgium. Mm. It had all the institutions, the legal structure. It had the state. It had the bureaucracy. It had everything. You know, as he said, they're the second best metro in the whole of Americas yeah. After, yeah. after New York City. And... Argentina is the lesson from history for economics of how good countries that everyone expects. Like the thing about when you think about economics, you think, okay, we're at this level. You know what? We should do better. 
we should end up in a better place how good countries go really badly wrong mm. with really profound implications for the people. And, and quite quickly as well. Really quickly. Yeah. And as I've always said, you know, I've talked about Ireland, is that, you know, when we fall backwards in a crisis, John, nobody's waiting for Ireland. The world isn't waiting for Ireland to get its act together. The world goes on. And it's hyper-competitive all the time, every day. And what we've got to figure out is our place in it. Mm. What we do, what we make, and how we actually make a crust for our people. That's all we've got to do as an economy, as, a, as an economist looking at how economies work. How do we make the place better? How do we make a crust? What's our little niche? And how do we expand that? What happened in Argentina is they had their niche. They had this huge agricultural exporting. They have massive mineral resources. And they forgot that they have to keep working on this all the time. And you have a combination of nationalism, this mm. patriotism that Martin talks about, yeah. a crazy approach to what they call collective bargaining, where the trade unions took over, where Peron allowed them to take over. Yeah. Right? Then you have the really hyper-wealthy, and this could happen here, the hyper-wealthy take their money offshore, like our tax exiles, mm. leaving the people in the middle trying to sustain the expectations that a good state does. So you think, I want a better education for my kids and you should provide it. And all those things come together. And it, the idea that the world could follow, the Western world could follow Argentina, I think is actually very true. When I look at, for example, a country like Italy, I think... Italy could follow the Argentinian example. Italy hasn't grown for a long time. GDP per capita hasn't grown for a long time. The society is quite divided. It's but there's still a big productive company. Absolutely, huge yeah. in Italy. But I'm just saying it could happen. Yeah. You know, when, when you look at a country like Greece, for example, Martin went to look at Greece uh, about 10 or 15 years ago before the crisis and he rang me and he said, wow, he said, these people are like us. This is what really? happened to us. What happened in Greece? You know, he yeah. said, this could happen. And he said, you know, just because you're European and you think, well, we're Europeans, this could never happen to us. It can. And that's that lesson that every year I really believe that you've got to make one good economic decision as a country. Mm. One good one. And if you keep doing that every year, making one good one, one better, one more, you'll be fine. But the minute you start making stupid decisions based on a worldview that you're much better than everybody else and that you deserve to be where you are and that in some way you merit it, I think that's what happened to Argentina and the country went backwards. But it's hard to see that at the time. That's the thing, you never see that at the time. Yeah, and is this, you know, bring it back to Brexit and this is a, a, a point you've made before. So are they in one of those situations now where they're making a whole load of decisions that could be just terribly wrong. Well, let's look at Britain before we go. Before the Second World War, Britain was the preeminent country in the world. Mm. It has been on the slide ever since, right? Yeah. From, from its position. Yeah. So Britain is an example of a country that's been on the slide. And I think now if they, I mean, you have the Brexit talks right now, John. Can you imagine history judging this present leadership in the UK saying, you abandoned your biggest trading partner over fish that you don't even eat, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, think about it. It's kind of yeah. crazy, right? And this idea that 
you decide that you're going to have a coalition of the red trousers and the blue collars. We talked about that before. You're going to abandon the economics you understand. You're going to abandon your trading partners. You're going to try to abandon gravity, this economic gravity that uh, Adam Posen talked about Mm. a few weeks ago. And you're going to break up your country by wrapping yourself in the flag of English nationalism, which gives the Scottish nationalists a uh, an obviously shot in the arm, mm. and you're going to preside over the destruction of your own country. For what? For some sort of view, nostalgic view of England being a better country than everybody else? I mean, what really freaks me out is, we talked about Che Guevara and Fidel. Mm. I don't mind a revolutionary in combat jackets. What I hate is a revolutionary in a golf club, right? <laughs> and Brexit is a project of golf club revolutionaries. People who believed that Britain in some way is going to be made better by turning its back on the world. And these are the people who, after having delivered their great worldview, they're not going to suffer. They're going to go back into the golf club, have a gin and tonic, and talk about rule Britannia. That's what's going to happen. Una tómbola 